A very warm welcome to Happy Times and Places, which is a positively inclined Doctor Who episode commentary podcast in which I, Toby Haydock, ask a friend to choose a Doctor Who story, I'll then watch and commentate along and try to see if I can guess what their favourite things about it are. Hi, Toby. Daisy Connolly here, retired comedian. Um, Today, I'm going to talk to you about the five things that I love about my Who story, which is Terror of the Zygons. Now then, that came out in 1975 and I was 11 years old and I watched it as it was broadcast. It was absolutely brilliant. Oh, Daisy, Daisy, Daisy. She's given me her answer, do. I mean, she did. Oh, that's Daisy Connolly, who, um, retired stand-up, she says, but also writer. Very one of those very artistic people. Um, she's uh, You can't see the visuals, uh, but she's there with her wonderful uh, uh, pink, pink hair in part, blonde in others. She's a colourful character and somebody who puts a smile on your face through effervescence is wrong because I think sometimes that can be kind of overbearing but she's just cheerful and joyous and infectiously uh, good company and it reminds me of a couple of things sadly is that one Debs was one of the uh, De- De- um, Daisy was one of the first people to to reply and do this process so before I'd done any of the podcasts and before uh that yeah sort of before they come out um and as you can as you know we're now on on story what 71 72 but i sort of mix things up a bit i think i was also cautious of doing highly regarded stories all in one go at the top because they got picked you know a few a few people in a flurry sort of picked off some of the some of the you know the favorites as it were uh and also i wanted to separate her from her partner uh derek who uh, did Nightmare of Eden back in the day, and they're both Tom Baker stories as well. So I'm trying to uh, have gaps between doctors and between kinds of uh, contributors, although Derek is a very different character to Daisy. Um, but it's just associations in my mind. So this is sort of by way as an apology to Daisy that she was one of the first people to respond positively and do this silly podcast. And, uh, and, and it's taken her this long to hear the fruits of her labour. You're not the longest... Daisy, uh, I think poor old Steve, Steve Lyons is waiting for me to watch the sense rights. Matt Evenden, the keys of manliness, and they—I think you know—I think uh, they did their recordings before the dawn of time. Anyway, I try and mix and match, and also I've been trying to do a lot more sort of newer who episodes recently that I'd been a bit slow doing, and uh, that also people didn't gobble up either. So anyway, for whatever reason. My apologies, Daisy. So lovely to see her face. In fact, I don't think I've seen Daisy since my birthday, which, the year I moved to London, which would be, oh my goodness, about 2007. That's terrifying. No, but maybe because you think you're sort of in touch with people because you're Facebook friends, and we, we are, and I sort of see what she's up to, and she probably sees what I'm up to, and you can drop messages to people. Oh, but yeah, because that was before I... My goodness, and I remember because she bought me some... Um, she bought me some, to, uh, toffee, you know, those toffee cup things, 
uh, I remember bringing me those. It was a very sweet present. People, you know, a few of my mates from the comedy circuit. It was the last time I had a proper sort of because I was, I was newly, yeah, I was new, yeah, I was, I, I, I was kind of, yeah, on my own and in a bit of a funny old place. And um, so, so just sort of put the word out to a few mates, and nobody ever comes out for my birthday because it's, because uh, it's um, January the second when everyone's asleep. So I think I just put sort of word out on the circuit and just went I'm going to be in this pub it's the Queen of Hearts I think um, if anybody wants to join me and to my surprise quite a few people did so my self image of going oh nobody comes out for my birthday and in fact I've just said it um, as easily as breathing nobody comes out for my birthday and actually some people and not people that have ever been to my house do you know what I mean not people um, whose, whose wedding I've been to and vice versa turned out and socialised me with me on my birthday so it's a reminder actually sometimes to get over yourself but also a real reminder of you've got friends out there and people who you care about and like who you don't see for my god 16 years that is terrifying I mean she hasn't changed a bit that the hair colour's changed because her hair colour changes quite a lot but um uh she hasn't otherwise changed a bit well nice to see you Daisy uh who is yes uh, a multi-talented person and also um does stuff online as well so i'll give i'll give all the internet details at the end but yes daisy's video is quite brief so i think there'll be quite short points uh and i don't know i don't know how much of a fan daisy is i know she you know i know she likes who both her and uh, derek are sort of uh, you know aficionados of the finer things by which i mean you know our kind of stuff um but i don't know if she knows her douglas camfields from her timothy coombs let's find out but anyway um Great to see her there. That was sort that was sort of mental housekeeping for me, really. But better out than in. I, you know, I'm reminded. Well, one that she did that ages ago and has had to wait. And two that I haven't seen her for ages. And three, she's really nice. And I've been looking forward to seeing what she has to say. So, um, gosh, time does now fly. But it's Terror of the Zygons, which is a story. I might have quite a lot to say about because it's one of those ones that there was the target novel of that's how you know I did for, for me this was a, a classic way of of, of uh, appreciating a Doctor Who story I read the target novel. well we had the target novel first so I looked at the cover a lot uh, and of course it was called Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster it's one of those ones that uh, I always knew by a different title you know I was quite shocked to discover it was called something else uh, and, and for many years I, you know I would have called uh, it would have seemed wrong to call it uh, Terror of the Zygons because those target novels were my uh, were, were my sort of default titles and you know Doctor Who and the Cybermen Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion but but now enough time has passed that I mean I still call Snickers Marathon but that's for a number of reasons partially because Snickers is a singular thing and it's got a plural's name and it sounds like Knickers and it just sounds a bit American and I want my calorific chocolate bar named after a after a race that only prime athletes can do but uh, and also you know I'm a I'm, I, I don't like change I'm a Doctor Who fan I don't like change and yet I have with those titles I now do think of this as Terror of the Zygons I don't think of this as Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster which is interesting because I definitely would have done for for the good a good few years of my of my early life and I love that book cover it's one of those great Chris Achilleos book covers uh with uh uh, with this with the scarrison on one side the zygon on the other and the doctor in the middle and one of the you know brilliant sort of circular kaleidoscopic thing behind um beautiful beautiful so 
And then it was one that I, 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 I saw when I'd got to know a few fans and, you know, I was given a few uh, videos, you know, bootlegs. Blah, blah, blah. I'd, I'd started seeing the back catalogue now. But, yeah, Zygons came quite late. And I think I spoilt it for me slightly. I've always had a bit of a... I've, I've never had it up there in my top, 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 even though anything uh, in the Hinchcliffe Homes... Uh, era is you know is is high up but this has never been as high as the sort of acme of that era which to me is the acme of of classic doctor who um and i think it's because when my friend showed it to me they were editing something or they were doing something and i saw part four first and part four is atypical and part four also of course has the really bad bit with the 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 Scarrison, you know, outside the window and that, you know, chewing the thing, and and it's not a great model shot. And so I think when I then did watch it all the way through, I, I which I did, you know, not that far away. I think then I borrowed the tape or whatever, but I'd already had it kind of, you know, it'd already been a disappointment. I re- I remembered thinking of it as being having read the book and 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 a lot of those. Um, you know Hinchcliffe Holmes ones because the production values are tend to be quite high in this era um, had been ones that had always been a you know a pleasant experience and, and rarely been a let down the odd you know fake beard and crap bit of snow in seeds of doom aside I mean I, I was always slightly disappointed when I watched uh, any Doctor Who the first time around having known the story because it never quite you know fitted into my imagination and because I'm a, an inherently downbeat sort of person which is why I have to try and battle against that at all the time you know I, I, I have to consciously fill my half empty glass um, and try not to do it with piss or poison um, so it's a constant battle and that's what this is sort of about this is you know for, for irregular viewers I am not uh, a, a sunny optimistic cloyingly cheerful this will be fun type of person this is an exercise to try and beat the dark <laughs> uh, and and I've you know and I and I feel fortunate that in recent years I've I've been able to enjoy Doctor Who stories for what they are not for what you know the the shortcomings that manifested or or what they failed to be how they failed to match my childhood imagination and terror of the zygons you know is a, is an extreme case of that because um as i say i i i was given episode 4 first or i watched episode 4 first so the first three episodes were already kind of tainted because i knew what we were building up to and i've always been even though i you know I know Camfield is great. I, I I love the synthesis of Camfield and Robert Banks Stewart, which happens again in um, the Seeds of Doom and Jeffrey Bergen too, the musician. Um, but I'm I'm feeling positive this time around, and I've and I feel that on on this occasion and and approaching it from start to finish, um, a lot of the uh, sort of disappointment that I've maybe felt with this story, as I say. It's all relative. It's still really high on. It's still pretty high. Um, but I don't know. I've just got a feeling because of the the way that this game plays out and, and my experience of other stories recently uh, is that, uh, and because I'm in the, uh, frankly, I'm in the mood to watch Terror of the Zygons. So let's watch Terror of the Zygons and uh, hopefully have an awful lot of fun doing so. So I, ha- I have it ready on the DVD... Uh, which mine was not even open because it was one of the last DVDs and I was in hospital when this came out uh, and uh, with a very nasty bout of psoriasis. 
Uh, so actually, yeah. So I haven't seen Daisy since this came out on DVD. This came out on DVD ages ago because I was in London then. It was towards, towards the end of my time in London because I was I was very poorly in hospital and then and then and that kind of that kind of initiated a, 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 a sort of everything else going wrong. So I I, I got this on DVD and I I think I'd already been shown the um, the missing scene. You know the uh, uh, the, the, the the that is on the director's cut. Um, which is the you know which would be the big curiosity for me, but I don't think I've actually seen any of the other extras on on this. It it was a it was a tricky time, and um, and and sometimes, and sometimes when you have a tricky time, you fall into the things that give you comfort. But sometimes also you don't want them to be sullied by that. So I, I think one of the reasons I didn't watch the extras was because I thought that every time I watch this again, I will be reminded of the fact that that wasn't a great time. Well, of course, now I'm reminding myself of that that wasn't a great time. And it, I, when I think of the extras I haven't watched, they still prompt that. So there we go. It didn't work. But anyway, um, uh, I'm not... The, the reason I mention that is because... Uh, well, one, I thought it was interesting it was still in the cellophane. So I've just devalued my DVD just for you guys. I don't know if it would be more expensive if it was resold in, in cellophane. Um, and not that I would sell it anyway. Uh, I mean, if I do, you'll know I'm in real trouble. Um, uh, I keep the DVDs and the Blu-rays. Do you do that? Uh, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm, I'm, I'm able to do that. Uh, but, but, but yes, anyway, listen. Um, I, I'm, I'm watching the broadcast version i'm not watching the director's cut although i will refer to that that scene that has been added uh you know to to, to that, that that they would have included if they could but i i still there's still part of me that goes no it has to be the i have to watch the broadcast version um even though the director you know want, want would have wanted to include that scene had he been able to pull it off in the way that he wanted but anyway i'm going for what was shown on television when it was when it was first broadcast, even though that happened before I was born. But it is the version that I am used to. So, uh, with that qualification uttered and explained, and a lot of probably unnecessary scene setting, but um, these get these have got a bit more reflective as they've gone on, and, and, and all of the stuff that surrounds the episode, and indeed the contributor, I think is important to you know, our psychological makeups as viewers and consumers and people who have thoughts on the wonderful thing that Doctor Who is, which, you know, gets its tentacles in everywhere, into friendship and life and um, all sorts of other things. So listen, come with me. We're going to Scotland. I mean, we're, we're going as far as a minibus can take us from London to an approximation of Scotland to watch terror of the zygons and i'm going to press play in three two one ah so here we go terror of the zygons uh i still sort of think of it as being part of season 12 although it starts season 13 it's got it's like that weird cusp isn't it because it was part of the production of season 12 but it was held over to to open season 13 or that's how we see it the tom baker seasons are quite oddly broken up actually and our and and our decision of what fits where is 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 yeah, it's not necessarily based on proximity sometimes. Anyway, that doesn't. Let's not get into that. I was always quite um, pleased when I learnt that stories had link 
so you know and I, and I never quite understood all of the details you know when I was really young but that but that you know the, the the doctor has been summoned by the brigadier and that's something we found out about at the at the end of the the, the last story I always liked it because I think I even though I you know one of my earliest memories is season 18 and it's got the three e-space stories and lots of references I, I I for some reason didn't have it in my head that Doctor always ref, you know referred back and forth. No, and I'm not talking about big continuity stuff now I'm talking about little bits that made made a you know story seem slightly linked and not just sort of arbitrary solo adventures um, the model I love that I talked through that opening model shot uh, here's another bit of model shot which I think is fantastic something about it being filmed um, you know, at high speed and on film, uh, and it being a model. I like a model. I prefer a model to CGI. Look at those little windows, and it's got a helicopter and it's got water. This is Hugh Martin playing Munro, um, who I will get a bee in my bonnet about uh, in in um, relation to the Daleks Master Plan DVD by the brilliant people of Loose Cannon, who go into great detail and work very hard. But nonetheless, there's part of my brain that can't stop being cross with them because he's not playing RT operator. That is Bruce Whiteman later in the episode. He is playing a character called Munro. But I think when the, uh, uh, do it, when Loose Cannon did the, uh, the two um, commentators in the Daleks Master Plan, who are played by Bruce Whiteman and Roger Briley, um, they went they went to Zygons to get footage of Bruce Whiteman uh, because we haven't got pictures of him from the Dalek Master Plan, and they use a picture of Hugh Martin because Hugh Martin is playing an RT operator, but he's called he's the character Munro. We'll see Bruce Whiteman later, and uh, they go into they get so much right in the loose cannon things, and I uh, you know and and and. I, I hate to be the guy that's going. I, I think you're fine, but and and yet I'm here. I am bringing myself up. I could have shut up uh, because I don't want to denigrate their work. But that's one of the things where I go. Oh no, you've got the wrong RT operator. That's Munro. So anyway, <laughs> uh, which is awful because I, I wouldn't want somebody to listen to the whole four episodes of this and just pick up on one bit that I get wrong and go. What about all the rest of it? Um, so. So I say that not to boast that I know which the right RT operator is that should have been on the Daleks Master Plan uh, reconstruction. I say it to point out what an awful sod I am and what our, why our psyche as Doctor Who fans actually means we're as bad as the ones that annoy us or, or I'm as bad as the ones that annoy me. Um, but it also speaks to our, our desire, what, to show our knowledge or for stuff to be right uh, and here's another one, Mr. Huckle, uh, Tony Sibbald, who in Doctor Who magazine, when uh, this story is shown to the class of 7G, is it? Um, uh, they don't realise he's an American character. And so, um, you know, the, the article goes, which effectively condemns Tony Sibbald's performance. You go, well, no, because he's using his own accent. Uh, you should know that, think I. Uh, he's not American, he's Canadian, but that's that on British telly in the 70s, that's enough. But his accent is not one he is assuming. That is his normal accent um and i'll forgive class 7g but i won't forgive the write-up which i think which again is the estimable gary gillett i think who is is one of if not the best writers about doctor who anywhere ever uh is is a mixture of knowledge and application and um interpretation and most of all his brilliant way with words uh it means i could i would read anything he wrote about doctor who probably to you know more than once uh, well probably many times but here i am pointing out a bit i didn't like i i'm drawn to do that and i hate myself and i'm supposed to be here celebrate there's lo loads in this that i've seen and yet i'm sort of i'm not venting it's like a confessional so i'm confessing things i 
don't like me for thinking but actually the things i'm confessing are both two criticisms of great and you know heart skillful endeavors by other creative people that i'd hate to be on the receiving end of myself what it's oh, oh, it's hard isn't it it's hard being us <laughs> anyway put those things to one side i've got them out now because i need to say i had to point myself had to point them out and as i say uh, uh, so look wonderful we have one i like i mean i like everything about this um you know i i'm convinced by the man from the oil company who's got the tartan shirt you know the the, the rugged sort of outdoory shirt on uh i uh, i love the sort of um uh, the, um the sort of dour uh impassivity of the duke of forgill played by john woodnut uh and and the brigadier's sort of sort of lightness in response to him. And, and i love his costume as well the leather gloves and the the cane uh and the sort of politeness but but twinkle with which lethbridge stewart deals with the, the the sort of dour and as it turns out alien but we don't know that yet but i like you know he could just be a grumpy landowner you know uh my family has served this country for seven centuries but that counts for nothing these days um uh, although i i, I you know, I am slightly shocked. Yes, he he does acknowledge it. Medieval in his attitudes. He's basically just said, if somebody trespasses on my property, I'm going to shoot them. Now, is this is this Robert Banks's Stewart's world of Doctor Who? Because I'm sure it's never been. I mean, I was I live in the countryside, and I was a bit shocked that farmers could shoot dogs, which makes me very sad. But they can if they're bothering the sheep. And I remember, you know, you're allowed to just they allowed to just shoot a dog. Our next door neighbour one had their dog shot, and it was terrifying. Uh, you know, terribly sad thing, but. Apparently, you're just allowed to do that if you're a farmer, because of course you've got to protect your flock and it's your land and blah de blah de blah. But that's slightly different from <laughs> from uh, somebody who works for an oil rig walking in your walking on your beach. I don't, uh, yeah. But of course, Harrison Chase has guards with guns as well, gu guarding his guarding his greenhouses. So obviously, in Robert Bank Stewart's Doctor Who, um, you're allowed to have armed guards on your property. Um, which is not something we really... I mean, yes, there are some military installations or big businesses or whatever that might have armed guards in some Doctor Whos, but but, but a sort of a private estate that's got the, the licence to kill. That's, that's And yet it kind of... It doesn't bother me, I, but it, it and it kind of always... And I like there that the, the, the brigadier sort of plays to the Doctor's Achilles heel. He goes... Uh, you know, you want more men to die, and he's oh, and he hides his and then and then he's got that dazzling smile. Tom Baker is perfect in this. I think he's so good, um, and I like the sort of re realism of the world. I I buy this world that they've created with such economy. We know that this is Mister Huckle, and he's from the and he's American, which is great, and he's from the he's from the the oil people so we have that sense of that outside world there because it's told with a very small number of characters and a very small number of sets. Um, and and both of the companions have a job and sarah jane smith with her dazzling smile the doctor with his sort of deep concentration and his sort of look of foreboding that he does so well uh you know, it's, it's it's like he sort of, he disappears, he, he subsumes himself in alien melancholy where he's weighing up the, you know, he's not just thinking about the consequences now, it's almost like it, he knows that everything has some sort of deep and ancient, you know, ramifications or, or, or um, echoes. Uh, and, and look at him, he's sort of slightly staring into the distance as his mind's ticking away. 
he's I mean he's so good Tom Baker um, and, and I love this costume that he has as well um, and look at Douglas Canfield going straight into his face there and it's calm maybe calm but it's never empty you want Tom Baker saying lines like that absolutely terrific um, Douglas Canfield is a great hero of this story and I think everything from the sort of colour palette the lighting of it the way that everything looks Nigel Curzon is the designer um, and look at Angus Lenny doing a little bit of business here he's talking to and he's noticed a little chip in the cup now he's not chipped the cup there to stick that in that must have been something he did and they probably won't have had the cups for rehearsal or, or certainly not those exact cups so he's you know he's decided at some point uh Oh, I'll just do a little bit of that while I've got this little chip. And I love those little bits of detail that a, that a quick thinking and experienced actor can do to add just a little bit of business to, to keep us, you know, just to keep the scene alive. Uh, and he's very good as well because he's a sort of genial, sweet, chatty landlord, but he's also, you know, superstitious. And it's funny superstition in Doctor Who, isn't it? Because we are we supposed to take... We know... Well... Are we supposed to take seriously his old wives' tales, you know? Um, and it's a bit, a bit like in the horror of Fang Rock as well. You know, are we supposed to believe in the beast of Fang Rock? I'm not sure that we are. I think they're supposed to be sort of weird superstitions. And yet the riposte to weird superstitions go, yeah, it's probably not likely to be some mythical beast. It's more likely to be a shape-changing alien because that's much more rational. You know, it's, a bit, it's a bit like when Sarah has a go at Mr. Short, isn't it, in Robot, where she goes, oh, you, you're mad, you're like the blooming UFO people. And you go, yeah, but in this universe, the UFO people are right. Um, Camfield is so good. Look at that. Look at the beautiful lighting on the monster and the human eyes. The, the Zygon design is great. Um, I, I mean, there's nothing... There's nothing bad about this. Um, and, and Lenny, I mean, I, Angus Lenny was well known to us when I was growing up because he was in two films that were shown quite a lot, 633 Squadron and The Great Escape. Um, and he uh, he has a really good part in, in both, actually. Um, so, you know, he's a movie star. Um, and here he is, you know, popping up in a couple of episodes of this story, giving, you know, giving genuine Scotsman which uh, is is you know that's it's one of those things in the BBC's arsenal, isn't it? You uh, yeah, well we can't go to the actual Scotland, but we can bring bits of Scotland to us. But this is great, isn't it? This is, you know, it is, you know, it's 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 ludicrous, silly sort of yokel superstition, but he does it with absolute conviction, even though he's quite a funny, fussy character, uh, and and you know the story is, we we assume sort of a bit a bit a bit of hokey old nonsense and and sarah but sarah doesn't patronize him she absolutely humors him but without without condescension uh and he as i say he plays it dead straight and look at this shooting here from uh the 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 beautiful film in the beautiful film uh where he's got just the amount you know the 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 the, the ratio of water to sky is is visually attractive and then you've got the fact that the, the human element, Monroe, played by Hugh Martin, is is uh, a silhouette, uh, and the and the light glistening on the sea behind and on the beach in front. It's a beautifully composed piece of uh, piece of filming there. And you know this is this this uh, this 
works to me as as Scotland <laughs> and that the sort of this the, the bare scrubby beach and we've got uh, the caber here played by Robert Russell who's a previously been Doctor Who as a guard in Power of the Daleks uh, and was and was working you know much 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 later too he was still working in the uh, the late nineties early two thousands and you know Harry's Harry's capable and got agency and is on his own and has driven off in the Land Rover and he's getting to do a bit of investigating and also his doctory sort of stuff. Uh, but even, you know, even a shot of him getting out of the Land Rover is just, it's a really nice low angle there that gets him far away and the, and the vehicle in, but then gets him to come close up as well using just one shot, very economical, but with an eye. Um, and uh, Jeffrey Bergen's music, for those of us used to quite a lot of Dudley Simpson is, uh, you know, an interesting change and it's moody uh, uh, and it's, uh, it, it is quite similar to his score for, for Seeds of Doom. So I, I do sort of pair these stories together, really, because it's Canfield, Bank Stewart, Bergen. And this, the, I always, yes, I've always felt a bit sorry for Munro here because he survived, he survived the oil rig he works on being eaten by the scarrison spends all night in the sea washes up on shore he's safe he's free he's also got the information that could tell us that the rig didn't you know was was attacked by a monster but because of the capital punishment that is able to be doled out by by a, a basic a farmhand by a giver by a laborer by a by a bodyguard or whatever you know he's gilly he's a gilly isn't he um but because because he has the power of life and death for anybody that's on the land uh i mean it's great because it means that he doesn't quite have time to tell us everything because the story is being you know the the plot is being um you, you know delivered at, at the correct pace the landlord here's got second sight and the bagpipes go. Isn't that beautiful? The bagpipes are there to help to say we're in Scotland, even though we're in a, you know, three room, three wall set in TV Centre or wherever. Um, Tom Baker has this wonderful melancholy. And look at the look he shoots her there. Now that, if you took that on face value, is a grumpy, sour look. But we know that that sourness is the sourness that you can afford between friends. And then we're slightly closer in on Tom Baker for that next shot when Harry's been shot and he's, you know, he's got the drama in his face. But also that's been perfectly done because Sarah has answered the phone with her lightness that she has. Sarah, uh, Elizabeth Sadin has a beautiful lightness that dances across the screen, not just in the way that she has those expressions on her face, but the way that she delivers her lines. And she does that silly thing where she's in a place, so she puts on a silly Scottish accent and that, sort of wrong foots us because you go oh Sarah's just being silly because and then her next line has to be a complete change Harry's been shot and it's like whoa hang on uh, and then we cut to a montage sequence of monsters that we can't see beautifully lit those bobbly bobbly hands and the spaceship that is in itself is, is organic itself and that's not enough even though the lighting's great you've got fades as well to give it a slight uh, oddness and abstractness so to say that this is a completely alien environment and these things observing from afar these whispering this whispering sort of chorus of malfeasance is uh, is some strange and off odd uh, alien incursion it's, it's so well done this is bruce whiteman who is a 
another Camfield regular. He's in. Uh, he's yes. So he's one of the. Co- he's Scott, the Australian commentator in the Daleks' master plan. He's also William de Tournebu in the Crusade. Uh, so he's he's who should have been used in the uh, Daleks' master plan recon. And now I've got that out there. I'll shut up about it because. My God, they did twelve episodes of absolute brilliance, and 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 so I should shut up, um, uh, because the, the, I'm sure in everything you know, I know in everything I've done there are mistakes because you've got your eye on some other things, and I'm not particularly grateful to people for pointing them out because I might probably have uh, also I probably noticed them when it was far too late to do anything about them. So shut up. I almost I'm now regretting even saying that. But when I was building up to this I thought I do need to point that out because it's it bugs me. Um but why I could have just pointed it out when I was talking to the dog. Uh and in future maybe that's what I'll do. But there is something about enunciating something, isn't it? to exorcise it even though it's not i don't even have a dog it's not my it's nothing to do with me it's a thing i i was i i was i was allowed for free as well as a result of hard work from other people anyway um sister lamont sister lamont is played by lilius walker uh, who is brilliant. They've given her a slightly shiny face and they've scraped her hair back. She's actually a strikingly beautiful woman in real life. Uh, she's in uh, Nigel Neal's Beasts, amongst other things, uh, in uh, The Dummy, uh, and she's in uh, The Out of the Unknown with George Cole and Peter Halliday, also directed by Douglas Camfield. Um, is it The Last Lonely Man? Um, uh, Baker's so good at this. Look at the way he's sort of assessing this and... and there's something great, isn't there, about a, a you know, it's a it's a bit of a visual. It's a it's a tooth mark, um, uh, which is going to give us the size of the beast, which is a great way of doing it. Uh, and, and and look, yeah, look at the foreboding on his face and the calculation. Yeah, he's he's weighing that up. And this isn't quite a this is a bit of a time jump. And obviously, and this is great for me as a as a kid because I used to have plaster of Paris, and we used to have these molds. Uh, you had all sorts of different shapes, you know, flat ones that were trilobites, things like that. But but the ones I liked best were were ones that were dinosaurs. And what you do is you mix up the plaster of Paris, you'd pour it into a mold. And then it would dry and then hopefully you'd got rid of all of the air bubbles and you'd peel it off carefully and you'd have a white plaster of Paris, Tyrannosaurus or Triceratops. Tyrannosaurus was hard because the arms would come off. Triceratops, you'd occasionally not get a horn if you didn't fill them properly. Uh, but if you got them right, you had this lovely model that you could then paint. That that was fun. That was, you know, that was... That, that was a, a, a real treat to do that when I was a kid. Uh, look at that. I mean, the Zygon design is brilliant. And look at the light, the beautiful light. And the fact that the masks have the, you know, the Friedlander trick of uh, of the human eye and the human mouth. Uh, and, and, you know, some good makeup means that it's, a, you know, there's a, 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 a seamless... Uh, move you, you know, seamless move from one to the other uh, in, in in the physiognomy um, and, and of course Harry being shot in the head it was a, it was through Doctor Who I, I learned that you could shoot someone in the head and not kill them I've actually recently done the gunfighters and in the book of that Phineas Clanton gets shot in the head at the gunfight at the OK Corral but the uh, the bullet bounces off uh, and you know this the bullet has grazed his skull we're told here whereas you know up until that point I thought well if you get shot in the head you're dead you know I remember in the book the scene of Harry gets shot he's like well how's he going to get out of that so it was it educated me Doctor Who informs educates and entertains and I was entertained by being informed and educated that you could shoot someone in the head and not kill them <laughs> um, and in fact I was talking to a friend of mine 
Uh, oh, she's so spooky. It's a wonderfully impassive and menacing performance. She, uh, Lilius Walker, was married to Peter Vaughan uh, uh, until, un- until he died not that long ago. And I, I never had, I've, I've, I've met and interviewed Peter and I'm still in touch with his son, Dave, but I've never met uh, Ms. Walker because um, I don't think she's wild about giving interviews and stuff like that. Uh, so, because um, we couldn't, yeah, we, I know we struggled to get people for the DVD of this as well. Um, certainly cast-wise. Uh, that's brilliant, isn't it? All these close-ups that we've had, but they've been quite still. Look, look how close in this. That's a brilliantly impassive shot. And the no, no. But also when Harry moves, oh, I love that. And the mouth open. Look, I mean, that this cliffhanger, I could write a 10 billion word essay on and they would all be positive. So everything from that. So we started with, with Harry, but when Harry moved, it becomes quite a messy shot, but it's deliberately messy because actually the shot is still held and framed very well. But it's the movement makes it messy because it's quite close up, but there's a reason for that. One, because we've been dealing with quite a lot of close-ups. The close-up of Sister Lamont, the close-up of, of Harry. Well, one, it helps when you've got small and probably quite sparse sets as well because you you know there's a budgetary element as well as the brilliant creativity. Um, but those close-ups really help particularly if they're of Tom Baker and they're quite foreboding. But the composition of each of those shots leading up to that cliffhanger is absolutely magnificent. And yeah, Harry starts to move and it gets a bit messy, but it's supposed to be, it's deliberately messy because having, it's a contrast to all the other close-up shots and it suggests, you know, it's, 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 it's showing the, 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 the fact that what Harry is looking at is itself messy and metamorphosing. It is, as we learn later, it is Sister Lamont, Sister Lamont, uh, ch- ch- you know, changing into a Zygon. So that 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 sort of flurry of Harry and no, no, um, you know, is it's a suggestion that something sort of, yeah, m- 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 of a metamorphosis is happening in his view. And then, of course, he's saying no, no. And then we cut to Tom Baker, Doctor Who, saying no, no, but in a completely different tone of voice. So that's a beautiful that's a beautiful little uh jump from you know one what what you know the same word to a different word but with a different dramatic emphasis which is so brilliant and that shot of tom baker on the phone with the, the brigadier in the background is great and then you're close in on sarah because she's reporting something in and that's quite secretive so again that's another close camera but that close camera is doing a slightly different job but it's but it's doing its job perfectly it doesn't feel like it's the same even though it's the same technique it's a technique that's been used for a different re- reason and she and i love the way that she's performing it too because she she uh you know she she she's doing it quite sort of low key and quite quite chatty uh and but you know but but you, you know and, and but but also quite slightly secretive um and then you have that shot of the hand the zygon's hand and the sort of whoop of the special sound or whatever it is that accompanies it and you then you have her scream and the scream sort of gets cut off but also her scream is sort of counterpointed with the silent scream of the agape maw of the zygon as it approaches her and and just something that little decision to go well let's have the monster with its mouth open it's not it's not a snarl it's not a it's not a gnashing of teeth or something like that it's a weird sort of alien woo you know it's it's strange it's not like anything you get elsewhere it's not a it's not a cliche it's a sort of strange and yet totally right choice that then crashes into one of the all-time great 
Doctor Who cliffhangers. I love everything. And it's our first sight of the monster, which is a fantastic design. And yeah, they look great in the spaceship with the lighting and all of that sort of thing. But it looks great in that, you know, sometimes things that look great in their, their natural environment, as it were, you know, look a bit disappointing when sort of hoiked out and, you know, stuck into the sort of normally lit studio. That doesn't at all. Well, one, because the lighting in this story is excellent. But two... Uh, it's it's you know it's still a glistening, uh, and it's also it's an orange orangey greeny monster, which is a great combination, but again an unusual one because the colour for monsters is green. Uh, but it's it's so it's a colour scheme and an aesthetic that we've not seen in our monsters before. But also they keep it sort of glistening, and and uh, you can sort of feel it the the the, the nodules and the, and the organic nature of it. Um, oh, it's so good. I I mean I think there is precisely nothing wrong with that episode i think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that episode and i also love the fact that as well as that episode being great there's a scene that was missing that was mythical oh there was a scene that was filmed with the invisible tardis but it was lost it was it was cut out and we don't have it anymore and then did the film turn up first ah the film's turned up but it's black and white and it's silent oh well at least we've got a vague you know, we've got we, somebody's found the film. That's nice. And then somewhere else, somebody found the the soundtrack, the voice. Now, forgive me. Could have been the other way around. Don't write in and don't do a podcast in twenty years' time when I can't do anything about this. Going well, you know, uh, one of the things that really annoys me about Terror of the Zygons is that when Toby Haydock did his podcast about it, he made a mistake and then do what I've just done to poor old Loose Cannon and Gary Gillett. Uh, as I say, I. I do it to illustrate what a, I was about to use the word beginning with C, what an arse I am, rather than to um, call either of those gentlemen slash um, bodies to account. Uh, Loose Cannon are brilliant and have done work far beyond anything I could ever do uh, and have given me hours and hours and hours of pleasure. So, of course, I've mostly talked about just one bit that they did that was wrong. I'll probably talk about it in the Daleks Master Plan commentary as well. I'm so sorry. Loose cannon boys are, should be canonised. Should be canonised. Not loosely. Actually, uh, for their, you know, for the brilliant work they put in to provide, uh, um, you know, free uh, en entertainment for pe people like me. Uh, and and as I say, Gary Gillett is is my my favourite writer about Doctor Who. I think he's brilliant. Um, so the fact that when he was writing up his brilliantly thought out article about uh, a class of school children, how they would cope with with uh, watching Doctor Who, that he he didn't know that one of the act one of the actors was using his original his his own accent uh, is. He should. I, I sh again. I should have. I should have just been quiet, uh, because I'm not fit to lick his boots. But there we go. Um, uh, I yeah. I I will. Uh, don't if if you think uh, I'm an ass for bringing them up. Don't worry. I th I think I think I'm more of an ass than you think I'm an ass, and I have to live with being me as well. So get over it because because i probably never will and that's that's punished that's the punishment i deserve <laughs> anyway listen that scene uh they had the they, they they found the film or they found the sound and then they found the sound or they found the film uh but 
you know, that's no good. You can't integrate it into the story because the film's in black and white. And then technology got so good that, you know, unlike those old Lauren and Hardys that uh, looked like they'd been marinated in the rivers of Chernobyl uh, when they were first recolored, when they were sort of garish, terrible things, you know, recoloring has got to the point where it can meld seamlessly and be now part of a director's cut. So isn't that one of the great sort of off-screen stories of, of of being a Doctor Who fan is there was this, you know, we got this in stages. We knew that there was this thing. Uh, well, first of all, we knew the story. And then we knew, we, you know, we, we, we knew about the circumstances of this scene that, did, that was made, but that was deemed unusable. Then, oh, but it's lost. Oh, okay. Then we found a bit of it. Then we found the other bit of it. But we still can't... So we found a bit of it, but we can't do anything with that because it's missing another bit. Oh, we found the other bit. Oh, okay, we can meld them together. Yeah, but it's in black and white. So we say, oh, yeah, but we've now got to the point where we can make black and white colour. It'll work. Uh, and I just love that, that there's enough people out there sort of digging around, but also the fact that, 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 that it shouldn't have happened, that a thing that had sort of three constituent parts that all needed to be brought together in order to make it work, we found or were suddenly able to do those constituent parts. I think that's extraordinary. I love that. It's one of the great joys of being a Doctor Who fan is that we, we, you know, there's always, you know, we always have the possibility of there being something that turns up that we've no right to expect to turn up, that, uh, you know, that 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 helps to, you know our understanding or enjoyment or appreciation of the story. I mean, as I recall this, Warris Hussain's diaries have just turned up. Well, they were always there, but either nobody thought to ask him or he didn't decided not to be forthcoming. I mean, I've been to his house, um, but whatever. We, so we're suddenly getting bits where we might not have had an exact date for something. We, it's, suddenly it's there and it's written down. It's a first-hand account. You go, oh, blimey, suddenly this is this is all juicy and exciting at a time when you'd, you'd think that everything's been done and said and found. Uh, and in fact, you know, I started doing the Too Much Information podcast because you still think, well, we've we've pretty much got got as complete a picture as we'll ever get. And then suddenly, two, you know, two or three bits uh, of, of uh, archival material come in and go, oh, no, mate, you've, you've got gaps to fill here. And actually that bit turns out to be wrong because we've suddenly found these things from 60 years ago that change our understanding or clarify our understanding. Uh, and I wonder if there, you know, there, there must be other television programmes, you know, there must be bits of Bergerac that are missing that we don't understand or don't know that nobody has gone looking for. So, you know, it's it's only because Doctor Who fans are so active. If this much of Doctor Who and stuff exists and has been found because we're looking for it, you know, there must be other programmes that aren't so beloved or don't don't attract such, you know, finickety geeks that... You know, they get annoyed because the wrong person with headphones on is used in a photographic reconstruction of something long lost that we happen to have the soundtrack for. Um, the, you know, is, is there a cellar somewhere that's got all the uh, film offcuts of, I don't know, uh, uh, um, an episode, you know, a season of Z cars? I suppose, no, because I suppose things of Z cars do do turn up but anyway i don't know we've been very very lucky with doctor who uh and i think it's episodes like this that um that that sort of point the way as to as to why because i think you know it's it's 
it's su- such a comforting piece of television in the fact that it takes me back to my childhood, even though it was on. I was born when this was on, but I don't. I'm too young to remember it being on. But the Target novel, I certainly you know read as read as a child, and that story stayed with me. They all did. Um, but it, but it, it, it's it, it reminds me of of the sort of Doctor Who of my youth and of the and of the kind of entertainment that we had that was sort of exciting, full of jeopardy and full of adventure and full of scares, but never distressingly so. You know, there's there's nothing sort of, even though it deals with danger and jeopardy and scary monsters, it's not, it's not, it's not unpleasant. It's not crude and visceral, although the the Zygons themselves are quite, quite viscous, but, uh, and that's partially because those three characters, well, four, you know, but, but, but Sarah, Harry and the Doctor are a great team. It's the last time they're together properly. They've all had brilliant things to do in this episode. Tom Baker's wonderful sort of brooding uh, presence, the sort of import with which he injects everything with his, you know, that cl- classical tenor of his, you know, and, and, and Harry just being straightforward and brave and, you know, he's a doctor and he just gets on with it and he's, but he's you know, he's pleasant company and he's, he's, he's a joy to be around. But Sarah Jane, with a, you know, the little smile, a little bit of enthusiasm with which she injects everything, the way she dances across the screen, not just physically, but, you know, facially and vocally. I love her. Oh, God, I'd marry her. You know, I wish I'd love to marry Sarah Jane Smith. And I'm not saying that in a in a leery sort of way either, although she's a very attractive woman. She's beautiful. But but because of who she is, because of what she is, because she's Sarah Jane, because she's fun and she's brave and she's witty and she's the the way that she as I said, I've said dances so many times. I've never thought of this in terms of Sarah Jane before today. But she does. She sort of dances across the screen and every move that she does sort of makes it flicker with life. Oh, I love Sarah Jane Smith. Uh, and she is involved in the cliffhanger. And the cliffhanger is... I mean, there's so many good things about that episode uh, for, from all of the key players, Bank Stewart, Camfield, or Bergen, Nigel Curzon, the designer... All of the cast, including Tony Sibbald, the Canadian, using his actual accent. <laughs> the, the monster design. Jim Atchison's the costume designer, isn't he? John Friedlander. Uh, you know, has been doing all that latex work so that we, you know, we have a lot of monsters of this period where, you know, like Lynx and Davros where the eyes and the mouth are mobile, but the face is beautifully alien, but there's the, you know, the, the join between them is pretty seamless, especially for the time. But all of those things come together in that cliffhanger. You've got the monster, you've got Douglas Canfield's direction, you've got Bergen's music, and that, and the special sound too. The lighting's great as well, by the way. Um, you've got Sarah Jane, you've got Sarah Jane and the Doctor, both of them pitching their performances exactly right. Uh, and they all come together in that cliffhanger, which has that hand and that brilliant, and that, and that, that genius touch of just going, let's just have the monster with its mouth in a sort of 
O shape. It's not gnashing its teeth. It's not gnarling. It's not snarling. It's not trying to bite her. But it's curious and weird and strange. And of course, she's screaming, and yet it's the one with its mouth. Ah! Oh! I love that cliffhanger. If Carlsberg made cliffhangers. <laughs> so the cliffhanger is my favourite thing about episode one. An episode one of Terror of the Zygons, because I haven't seen episode four yet. This is so much the better way to enjoy it. Oh, uh, is, I think, perfect. There is nothing. The, you know, the model shot of the of the oil rig it's beautiful the the night shooting you know i know it's a it's a model so of course they can make it at night but it's at night and the and the lighting the interior lighting is beautiful the color palette is good the doctor's even got a sort of bit of tartan to augment his costume the little gentle ribbing of the brigadier the the relaxation in john levine because he's working with douglas camfield so he's just a little bit more naturalistic and a little bit more He's having a little bit more fun with it. He's not quite as uptight as he sometimes is. Uh, the beautiful filming, the pacing, the drip, drip, drip of atmosphere, which is there in the music. I mean, it lit, the music literally sort of drips and plops with with atmosphere, nighttime, and and you know, it's and water. The music is is like the sort of slosh of the inky depths of the ocean and inkiness is dark and the first time we see the rig it is dark and it's night time and the way that the story plays out the way that we're fed little clues and the way that the doctor pieces it together and is realizing the nature of the threat and his increasing foreboding because of that and and wonderful lines like you know it may be calm but it's never empty that is such a great Tom Baker line and they write for him so well during this period it's like Robert Holmes knows exactly the sort of lines to give him that he can really inject with all that sort of otherworldly foreboding that Tom Baker does so well and yet he's funny and yet he's uh, you know he's 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 impudent with the brigadier but then playful as well. And he's sort of sour with Sarah, but you know it comes from a, 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 a sort of place of mutual understanding and respect. Uh, and, it is this, and, you know, if you, if you, that sour look that he gives you, if you judge that on, its, on the surface, you just go, oh, he's not being very nice. But it's not, it's, 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 there's so many layers underneath that. And I think sometimes, you know, Doctor Who fans are a little bit guilty of, 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 of not interpreting the meaning behind. Uh, you know, the, a, a performance like that. I've seen it written that, you know, Tom Baker, the, you know, the, the, Tom Baker's doctor's not very nice to Sarah. No, it's that the underlying love and respect is absolutely there between them. And, and some of the things they do, some of, some of the way that he talks to her is a sort of disguise for that because he's, well, one, because he's a spiky alien, but two, because he, he might not be that great at communicating. And three, also, because it actually is one of those things that you do with people that you actually have a rapport with I think that's all there I think there's so many subtleties subtleties there in that dynamic um, and also you've got the you know you've got the because you're in 
you know out, out of the way you're not in a metropolitan setting you're you're able to have a sort of a landlord with second sight who's got a couple of ghost stories as well which could be a little bit hokey but it's not because angus lenny who uh, d- you know d- gets it just right he he has the right mix of being sort of likable fusspot and you know um uh, mystical storyteller uh and it has fun with that it has its cake and eat it with that it sort of says this is fun and a bit silly but actually if we take it all deadly seriously it helps us it gives ballast to the to the fact that this story is about futuristic aliens and stuff but we're gonna make it work twice as well because we're gonna we're gonna grab mythology from the past and of course an unsolved mystery the Loch Ness Monster which is this this you know this great part of our legendary cultural storytelling to give it another dimension so yeah of course they realize that you know at the end they go oh well you know it's uh uh it's it's uh it's coming from Loch Ness, well, although we get that in episode two as well, don't we, when the Brigadier triangulates where, where it's come from. So you suddenly got, and, and as I say, this the book, this was called Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster. So you've got that, that I almost didn't mention, because you almost take that for granted, the fact that this is the story that explains the Loch Ness Monster. And we love a Doctor Who story that explains, you know... Uh, uh, anything from you know put it putting the great fire of london to to any, any sort of myths that we have uh certainly when i was a kid any any doctor who story that sort of explained a thing i was suddenly like what well, my, my program uh, actually has the answer to that thing that we learned about in s- school oh great um so it's got all of that it's perfect it's a wonderful installment of doctor who now i caught a little bit of Daisy's introduction there and she said she's going to choose five things so I don't know if she's going to choose episode by episode or not because bear in mind she hadn't had the advantage of listening to any that had gone out because I hadn't done them at this stage so it may be that uh, uh, the rules have not been though adhered to in the way that um, regular listeners may be used to but because this is this is from early days but let's see I may be preempting that incorrectly what's Daisy's first choice slash hopefully favorite thing from episode one and the first thing of my five things that i'm going to talk about is the ship organic technology fantastic that idea absolutely blew me away when i was younger and we've seen it lots of times since we've seen it as gone to in the episode of next generation which is called tin man um, <clears throat> Farscape had a living ship with a, a symbiotic pilot, didn't it? Um, and then recently, uh, Discovery, Star Trek Discovery, has a spore drive, which again brings in that organic technology. I found that fascinating. Ah, now, there we go. There's me going, I don't know if Daisy knows the difference between Douglas Camfield and Timothy Coombe, and she's just then given me an education in stuff that I know nothing about. So there we go. Uh because of course uh Derek and Daisy are are yeah very knowledgeable about uh Star Trek and of course Farscape hadn't even considered so she knows her stuff does Daisy um which is why I asked her um and uh, I, I yeah as I say I just wasn't sure how much how well she knew a Doctor Who um that's a great choice I mean the ship would have been something I would have chosen but I didn't choose it for episode one because, well, because I couldn't not choose the cliffhanger and because it's an embarrassment of riches. But I suspect in episodes two or three, I suspect probably I had half an eye on next week. You know, well, I've got to choose the ship, which I now cannot because the rules are if it gets chosen, I can't then choose it. Um, but of course, it might be that uh, she later chooses something 
that I've already chosen, then I do get a point for that. So anyway, so there's still hope for me, but I cannot choose the ship, which is a shame because it is one of the great uh, elements of the story. And hats off to designer Nigel Curzon, who I obviously won't be able to eulogise about when I choose the ship because I now can't choose the ship because uh, attempts to do, I mean, Claws of Axos aside, where Kenneth Sharp does a brilliant job with that set as well, but it's beautifully lit as well. And I think it's slightly more cohesive than the Axon ship. Um, which has the occasional sort of pl plastic chair, um, <laughs> uh, you know, space blobsity, um, uh, and the, the the odd flat that kind of sticks out slightly. I think, and I also think the lighting is is superb in in there as well, uh, and it and it you know and it, and it melds with the costume design as well. So there's great a lot of sort of thought between everything working very well together. Um, in terms of design and it's a great contrast to the the more straightforward design of the you know the human buildings so yeah absolutely with you daisy i love the ship too it's just i would have chosen it on a different episode because for episode one uh i chose the cliffhanger so i think this is gonna be fun because i absolutely adored that episode and i hope you did too and if you don't watching uh as as i'm rambling and most people don't to be fair do you You just uh, you know, most people don't watch along with the episode beside the you know in front of them which is fair enough um but if, you, if you're listening to this because you just listen to this as a podcast when you're when you're out and about and you don't always watch the episodes go and watch episode one of terror of the saigons i mean it's 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 really good and uh in, in fact i'll tell you what i'm just going to get on the phone and i'm going to ring you up and I'm going to tell you how good it is because I just... Oh, ah, ah. Thanks ever so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydock, and my special guest who this time around is Daisy Connolly, who can be found on Twitter at Dazed. That is spelled D-A-I-Z-E-D. I'm grateful to Daisy and to the patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Trevor Smith, Richard Smith, Andrew Snedden, David Spencer, Matthew Speddings, Joey Stephen, David Spofforth, Chris Stokes, Adam Stone, Mark Swan, Paul Taylor-Greaves, Jason Tyken, Dr. Gary Thomas, Richard Thomas, Jason Thompson, Sidney Truett, Van Man Sang, John Turner, Lee Wakeley, Gary Wales, Jeff Walker, Alistair Wallace, Gavin Ware, Peter Ware, Kevin West, Rich Wiggins, Chris Williams, Mr. Withit, Lee Wood, Ruben Herfendahl, Stephen Moffat, Peter Burns, James Cuday-Smith, Peter Harness, Ronald Hayden, Rob Leonard, Christopher Meredith, Gavin McLean, Richard Straw, Neil Tate, Nick Tedstone and David Trainier. The music is by Dave Gates, the artwork by Dylan Patterson. Would you like your name read out with gusto in the closing credits of a podcast, even a very obscure one that delves into the minutiae of Doctor Who? Then you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Uh, that enables me to keep these ad-free. I mean, I do keep, I will keep them ad-free, but this justifies my financially unsound uh, practices because I just think adverts are a pain and um, a lot I could do without them. It's fine. Let's just do it this way. Patreon, where you can pay as little as £3 a month to get advanced releases, bonus material, exclusives, and you get early access to all of the podcasts. This one that you're listening to now, if you're listening to it on iTunes, say, or Spotify, you'd have heard six months ago at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. And 
everything apart from a couple of trinkets, the old badge or two or something as you ascend the ladder, uh, everything is available. All the content for sure, all the releases, uh, all the podcasts and everything like that is all available at the lowest tier, which is £3 per month. But, you know, it goes right up. It's a sort of pay what you can, what you're inclined to do, whatever. It's the new model. It's the new way of doing things these days. I'm not a new model. I've never looked like a model and I certainly am not a new one. But uh, it's the new model for uh, self-employed I, artists, I don't know, um, pe- sufferers of verbal diarrhea and uh, who are in need of attention can can uh, ask people to to, get to to fund their lifestyle choices and offer in reward some attention-seeking and verbal diarrhea. That's what this is, but it's got a theme tune and you know some rudimentary editing skills so if that's the sort of thing you like to pay for you can and you don't have to that's the beauty of it but if you want to patreon.com forward slash toby and as i say there are inducements uh if you don't want to submit yourself to a monthly commitment you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash toby and that's like a tip jar it's a way of buying me a virtual coffee if perhaps you liked a particular podcast or you're feeling particularly generous but i know times are tough uh, and i know i mean we can't even afford butter do you know what i mean uh so you don't want to be spending it on self-employed people with dad issues uh so oh if you would paid me enough attention fella i wouldn't be doing this now it's all your fault anyway uh <laughs> you can go to itunes spotify podbean all those places costs you nothing to go there and to give these podcasts five stars and to give them a few lines of review that really helps it enables people to know about these podcasts it just gets them a little bit more visibility and it means that all of this is not for nothing i'm on social media i'm on instagram at toby.haydoke uh, i'm on twitter at toby haydoke i'm on twitter again at haydoke podcasts that's just the stuff about these podcasts and i have a facebook page as well uh, that's uh, where you look for toby haydoke comedian not my personal page which i'm going to make more personal as time goes on uh, thomas recorded a video for this as well i'm thinking i'm, I'm thinking of putting the videos on uh, the patreon page as exclusives uh, because frankly i'm so behind with the editing of the youtube versions of these and to be honest not enough people look at them um to, to guarantee that to, to warrant the time that they take really whereas you know getting them together for for um, you know itunes or podbean and doing them as a podcast is just a bit easier and a bit more satisfying i'm, I'm not going to waste the uh the, the the video version something will be done with them at some point but uh, they're certainly on pause at the moment because i'm writing a book about quite about i mean i'm not writing it right now but I, actually i should be right now but i've got a bit of a headache so i thought i'd uh, record some post-credits nonsense instead uh but yeah i'm writing a book about the quatermass serials which when this goes out on itunes should be out guys so put it on your christmas list um and it's been a labor of love and it's taken me a very very long time to do and uh, i'm currently quite pleased with it uh, let's uh and, and the editor hasn't seen it yet and he'll probably make it much better so anyway that's what i should be doing and instead i'm doing this but uh, you can find me on all those social media places uh, please follow me on them all because that tweaks my algorithms and uh, as you can tell um, i'm feeling a little bit in the need for some algorithm tweakage so get those tweaking fingers out please <laughs> I think I was quite neurotic in that podcast uh, in my 
<laughs> need to point out the things that were vexing me and then my own vexation at my vexatious nature. Oh, it's a spiral. Is there any Doctor Who fan that doesn't have some kind of neurosis <laughs> or mental health issue? I've been on Twitter recently. I'm not sure there is. Are you? Hello. Are you a normal Doctor Who fan? Then please write in and tell us all the normal things you get up to, like just, you know, being, being a, just a functioning human being. Um, there must be. There must be. Um, I And I'm not doing the whole, yeah, aren't I wacky? It's a real, it's a real millstone round my neck, the way that... Uh, I do sort of mental gymnastics to sort of that are prompted by self-loathing and then become self-justification because when you're justifying yourself, you're actually trying to go, no, I'm all right. I acknowledge my faults, but then you delve more into your faults and actually your own acknowledgement of your faults makes you hate yourself for being so um, so conscious of one's faults and the fact that one has to get into too much. See, it's a spiral. I, why, why don't I just have a lolly? Why, don't I, why can't I just sit and have a lolly? I want to sit and have a lolly. That's what I want to do. You'll know I'm happy when I, if I die, if they find me on my sofa with a lolly stick in my gob and a great big smile on your face, you'll know I've died happy. But what I'll probably do, though, is have a heart attack scribbling a note to a newspaper about some factual error that they've got. You know, some some fact that they've 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 got wrong about Doctor Who. And then the heart attack will be brought on by the fact that it's a fact that is wrong because I've made it wrong because of something that I didn't properly uh, check and had used as so yeah it's an article I've written that's got a mistake in it that I've stupidly let slip through because I was under stress and doing too much and focusing on other things so I stupidly let a mistake through that I then read got really annoyed about started to complain about then realised I'm complaining against myself and my, my whole body will just give up and rightly so and I think the world will breathe a sigh of relief but until then I'll carry on vexing <laughs>